On this episode, we interview Dr. Jean-Louis Quentin on part one of his book, The Church of England and Christian Antiquity. Welcome to the Anglican Podcast, Faith and Honor. Thank you for joining us. On this podcast, we hope to discuss many issues of interest to Anglicans worldwide on matters of history, doctrine, and values. The following is a recording of us having one of such discussions. It is important for us to know what you think, so wherever you happen to be listening, on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, and YouTube, please drop us a line and let us know what you think. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our podcast. Uh, We hope that you enjoy these shows, and uh, we put a lot of effort into finding the scholars and talking with them on issues of interest, and we hope that you enjoy this and that you support us, as well as giving us your comments and feedback in the various social media that you consume this. Well, today I have with me Brian Oldfield. How are you, Brian? Hi, doing very well. Glad to be here. It, we're here in the morning in the States, but we have with us a guest who is overseas, and that is Jean-Louis Quentin, who is a professor at the Sorbonne in France, in Paris, and he's written a fascinating book, which I thought would be of value to our audience to discuss and to think about and to engage with us on. Uh the broader, well, first of all, let me say what the book is, right? The book is called The Church of England and Christian Antiquity. It was published in 2009. Uh, and uh, it is several hundred dollars in in a bookstore, which is part of why we wanted to bring it over here to talk about it and bring some value to our listeners, at least this way. Uh, what's interesting about this book Brian, at least for me, and you can chime in and and, uh, let me know what you think as well, uh, is that it touches on issues that have have some, you know, contentions in the Anglican world these days. And uh, something I've been thinking about recently over the past couple of years is how do we move beyond those contentions and, uh, you know, move forward, um, move beyond labels and party, you know, associations and affiliations and have a kind of a, a unified identity that historically we've always had. I think that's the biggest part uh, for what you just said, the historical identity, because it seems that in the party spirit within the Church of England and broader Anglicanism that there's all this uh, hagiography, right, of um, an interpretation of the Anglican theological method. How do we do theology? So I think that's the value that Dr. Quantin brings with his book is not only is it a history, but it shows the development of the Anglican theological method through the years. Yeah, and uh, I it, I find it interesting uh, just to say also this before we speak with the professor, that uh, 
it may be the case that the, the English speaking world is is almost too divided on this. And so what's interesting is Dr. Quentin comes from a non-Anglo world and he gives a fresh perspective, which I think is fascinating because it, it's sort of isolated from all the all the hidden contentions. So with that being said, Dr. Quentin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Hello, good afternoon from uh, Europe. Wonderful. And uh, we wanted to just begin right away with the very first thing you say in the introduction. Uh, oh, uh, by the way, as far as the method of the book is going to go and the method of our covering the book, uh, it is not only expensive, it's also vast. Uh, and so what we'll do today in this episode is cover a section in it. And in the ne next episode and a few more after that, we'll try to cover a few more. And that way, cover as much of it as we can. Um, simply just that there is no way to cover the entire book in one episode with, without... And, and give it justice. It's just too too rich uh, otherwise. So before we cover the part we wanted to cover today, we wanted to begin with the introduction, right? Begin at the beginning. Um, and so you say something interesting. You say, this is the introduction that I'm reading. You say, today the statement that Anglicans are fond of the fathers and keen on patristic studies looks like a platitude. Uh, which I wish it were so, and I hope it is so. Um, but then you say, like many platitudes, it is a much, it is much less obvious than one might think. It has a long and complex history. So this this seemingly fundamental idea, which all of us should share anyway today, uh, it didn't just appear ex nihilo. Uh, it had a kind of a history behind it, and this book explains that history uh, in in a quite scholarly matter, as hopefully we'll all see. So, Dr. Quentin, I wanted to ask you, um, prior to the emergence of sort of parties and divisions in the 19th century, if we go back to the 18th century and the 17th century, what were some of the impressions that the Roman Catholics and the Roman Catholic theologians of all kinds had of the Church of England as opposed to the Reformed churches on the continent? Well, uh, I think it's, um, it's not obvious either. There is an evolution, definitely in the second half of the 17th century. You have a feeling um, in a country like France that the Church of England is very distinct, very different from uh, continental Protestant churches, and that it's identity lies in its special devotion to the fathers uh, in the great patristic editions produced in Oxford uh, under the restoration. At the beginning of the 17th century, it doesn't seem to me to be quite as obvious. I mean, it's a developing process. Right, I see. So you have certain discussions uh, amongst the divines but it becomes much more pronounced and becomes much more endemic to the sort of identity and the self-reflection of the Anglican world um, as as time goes on. And so what, so for example, in the book, in the same introduction, you have this interesting comment from a Roman Catholic, Dom Denis de St. Mark. He says, um, those of the English people that are called 
Episcopalian and who composed the greatest part of the state of England, I suppose. Yes, indeed. Professed to hold the fathers in a much greater respect than other Protestants do. And this he wrote, I suppose, in uh, 1690s, right? In the 1710s, another Frenchman, a Jesuit, uh, writes that the Episcopalians of that learned nation of England have shown a respectful love for the fathers whom they have taken pains either to defend by learned writings or to explain by notes or to adorn with beautiful editions. Uh, so yeah, today, a lot of people think that, uh, at least in the American world, uh, that the Roman Catholics have, have a sort of a monopoly on beautiful editions of the fathers, or it's somehow an alien notion to the Anglican world. But here you have men in the 17th century and in the 18th century, outsiders commenting on this and noticing this as uh, a cornerstone. Uh, I suppose, Dr. Quentin, we can go back to, uh, you know, although it was different, certainly, than later on, we can go back to, you mentioned John Jewell's challenge in 1559. Would you briefly mention what he said and what he did? Well, um, Jewell, uh, uh, it was first of all in a in a public sermon. It was very uh, like a so literally a public uh, challenge to uh, his recusant adversaries, and that in a lengthy conversation in uh, in writing, uh, challenged uh, Roman Catholics to prove. Uh, that their distinctive tenets, I mean, the, the points that distinguished Roman Catholicism from uh, the Church of England, could be proved either by scripture or by uh, the tradition of the first six centuries, I mean, the, uh, the ecclesiastical writings and the first six centuries. But, I mean, my point um, is that at the time, it was not regarded uh, by contemporaries as something specifically Anglican or specifically English. Uh, it was part of a quite a usual controversy at the time, but in a retrospect, obviously, it came to become part of a distinctly Anglican tradition. Right, I mean, you have Calvin, who was a very, very strong patristic scholar yes, indeed, himself. Yes, yes. Right, you have, uh, I think, an interesting uh, uh, trajectory in the reform world that is that starts very heavily committed to not only the the, the church fathers but the medieval uh, schoolmen as well, theologians, um, and then it slowly peters out. And in fact, you trace this, and we'll cover this in a different section of the book in a different episode later on. But a famous uh, French Huguenot. Jean Dale in the 1660s makes a kind of a decisive attack on the fathers. Uh, although it's been petering out even before then, that that's one of the sort of defining, at least for me, a defining moment in which the reform tradition from then on uh, doesn't seem interested in appealing to sort of traditional historic church writings. And the Anglicans just at that time in the 1660s have never been as committed and as interested. So there's a clear divergence at that point. What do you uh, think? I would like to add to that question before you answer Dr. Quantin is, do you think that the reformers, especially uh, Calvin, 
were using the fathers in more of a polemical way against Rome rather than actually going to them to develop theologically? Well, I think we need very carefully to distinguish two points. The, the use of the fathers in religious controversies, which was universal in the 16th century. I mean, both parts in every controversy quoted from the fathers, claimed that the fathers supported them. And indeed, the idea that the fathers are a positive source, uh, an authority, uh, which can be used uh, at least to uh, understand scripture, to direct the interpretation of scripture. And that's uh, a more um, 17th century development, I should say, in the Church of England. And, uh, Dr. Quentin, what do you think of the fact that you go back to, to Cranmer, uh, and uh, one of the interesting things about him is uh, that his library, his personal library, was greater than that of Oxford as a whole. Uh, and, uh, you know, in all of his writings, the fathers uh, are treated very centrally and prominently. Well, he studied the fathers very carefully. For instance, uh, at, uh, in the library of St. John's College, Cambridge, you have Cranmer's edition of John Chrysostom, John Chrysostom in Latin, it was only published in Latin at the time, and it's fully annotated, uh, Chrysostom's commentaries on Paul, fully annotated by Cranmer. So he read the fathers very closely. At the same time, he moved uh, decisively the newly reformed Church of England away from the late medieval and uh, Tridentine idea, uh, uh, Tridentine notion of tradition. So he studied the fathers very closely, but he insisted, uh, as was eventually enshrined in the 42 articles, uh, that uh, everything necessary for salvation is contained in Scripture. Uh, so he broke with... Uh, the late medieval uh, doctrine of tradition. And I think just that whole tradition uh, that you mentioned in the late Middle Ages, uh, who, who was it that, yeah, wasn't it Heike, Heike Obermann that, that had <laughs> yes, yes. three views of tradition? Uh, and in the Middle Ages, you have tradition as a kind of a supporter of scripture. And then you have a tradition as a kind of uh, parallel scripture. And those two views exist together, and they're kind of not challenging each other, and they kind of exist together. And then in at the Reformation, the Roman Catholics just take on the latter view, that tradition is a second kind of scripture, a second authority, a second source. And uh, at first, the Reformers seem to take the, the, the sort of the traditional medieval uh, view of, of tradition a traditional view of tradition, right? Uh, which is that it is a supporter of scripture. And that's why they would quote uh, in Calvin's case or in Beza's case or in Martin Hemnitz's case uh, and in Melanchthon's case, hugely, right? They quote, you know, St. Bernard and they quote uh, Bonaventure and Aquinas, um, not to mention the fathers themselves. But 
as time goes on, at least in the Reformed world, that disappears. And so the Anglicans almost become the last ones or the only ones that carry that on and even amplify it and grow in it and strengthen it. Would you say that's the case? Well, um, if you look at, um, at, the, at continental reformers, at uh, Calvin, I think they even departed, that would be, obviously, uh, people might uh, dispute this, but it seems to me that they moved even from the sort of, uh, in quote, weaker or low notion of, uh, of tradition, uh, in the sense that uh, they agreed that scripture, might, that tradition, a patristic tradition, might be uh, useful to interpret scripture, but they stressed very strongly that scripture was essentially its own interpreter, and especially that the canon of scripture did not depend from tradition. Uh, so it's the Calvinist idea of the inner witness of the Spirit. Uh, whereas the, uh, the English originality uh, is that already in the 39 articles, you have that link between the canon of scripture and ecclesiastical transmission. The, uh, the article says, uh, in the sixth article, uh, we mean by scripture those parts of the New and Old Testament which have always been received in the church. So, from that point of view, even from the beginning, there is uh, an English originality, at least uh, compared to uh, the Calvinist world. Not so much compared uh, with uh, Lutheran theology, which have more or less the same uh, idea. Oh yeah, Lutherans had, and, and still do to some extent, an incredible interest in patristics. Uh, although although some of them have also, uh, I, I guess, lost that a little bit. But I think some of us have lost that as well. So, but yeah, undoubtedly, historically, they've been very strong about it. Um, so let's, let's now uh, shift into, um, in media ray, uh, into a kind of uh, a section of your book where having set up all the preliminaries, uh, which we've just discussed, but perhaps we'll get back to all of this in another podcast. We'll cover Cranmer Moore and John Jewell um, and the canons of 1571, which enjoin on, on ministers to go to the church fathers. Uh, all of that can be covered in perhaps a separate episode. But... Um, here we want to zoom into the year 1590, which is uh, at first seemingly a random year, just out of thin air. But in fact, 1590s, in my mind at least, uh, are a kind of a watershed moment in which uh, a lot of the old assumptions amongst Englishmen about what the future is going to look like begin to somewhat break down. And a, a sort of a crystallizing of Anglicanism happens. Um, and we can go point by point on several issues, several specific points of doctrine or discipline that uh, that point that out in greater detail. So we can look at episcopacy. Episcopacy is a very controverted point today. Uh, many provinces in the Anglican world are, 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 are looking into this question and trying to understand it more deeply. Um, so instead of having one of us say what the answer is, we thought the answer should be in the Anglican divines. And so you have this interesting uh, discussion about episcopacy from the historic Anglican perspective. Uh, 
And this is now on page 94 uh, in this part two that we're going to cover today of the book. You say, after 1590, a new generation of conformists began to argue that the superiority of bishops over presbyters was not merely a legitimate ecclesiastical institution, but had in some sense a divine origin. Uh, that's interesting because in the in the polemics of today, uh, people sometimes draw a sharp distinction between the Caroline divines and the Elizabethans, and they say the Elizabethans were one way, and then the Carolines were another way, and you can you know you can pick which one you like, but they were different and at war with each other in some ways. Uh, whereas what what the evidence seems to show is that not only the Carolines, but under James I and under Elizabeth, you have this, this intense commitment to the doctrine of, of uh, in Latin, jure divino, the divine right of episcopacy. And you go to the 1590s and you find evidence of this. Uh, would you mention, for example, one of the biggest uh, scholars on this, Thomas Bilson? What, what was he like? Who was he? And what were some of the arguments he made in his 1590s treatise on episcopacy? Well, first of all, I should stress that uh, the, uh, the idea that the 1590s were some sort of watershed uh, and the distinction and the continuity after the 1590s with uh, Caroline divines is much stronger. It's now uh, commonly received ideas, at least among British historians, that seems to be uh, the, the general view, so I am not introducing anything uh, new on that point. What I have tried to contribute is to look a bit more closely at the arguments which were brought in, and especially the arguments of uh, Thomas Bilson, uh, who indeed uh, was a very important figure later, uh, Bishop of Winchester, uh, who wrote a massive treatise on the perpetual government of Christ Church. Uh, so he argues very strongly that episcopacy is based in scripture. Uh, uh, he finds episcopacy uh, in Paul's uh, pastoral epistles, uh, in uh, the mention of the angels of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, but he uses the fathers as key to the interpretation of scriptures, and he stresses that the universal consent, uh, the consensus, of the fathers uh, is, if not strictly speaking, authoritative. He stresses that uh, it would have no authority against scripture, but it constitutes a very strong presumptive argument uh, to direct the right interpretation of scripture. Would you say that Bilson thought that the and the interpretation of scripture done by antiquity stood prima facie against, say, a Calvinistic interpretation of the government of Christ's church? Yes, indeed. He thought that it was uh, a very strong, uh, so I would say, presumptive argument, and that it would be, uh, as he puts it, uh, so it's, uh, clearly it's a polemical work, uh, so the style is often... Uh, polemical, but it would be the highest degree of presumption uh, to reject uh, the teaching of the fathers of the interpretation 
uh, of the fathers. So he cites, uh, this is Thomas Bilson now, right, in, in, in the Perpetual Government of Christ Church. Uh, he cites Titus and Timothy, right, as, as examples in Scripture of bishops made by the apostles. Um, and he, he makes this interesting argument about the succession from the apostles. He says, uh, this is on, on page 96, Quote, we can reckon those that were ordained bishops by the apostles in the churches and their successors to this present. So he's interested in, uh, in a, a kind of a transmission of episcopal authority. Uh, he, he doesn't make the Roman Catholic argument, I don't think, that there's any kind of uh, uh, you know, mystical power that comes along with this episcopacy. But he does want to stress that it must come from the apostles. Right? Yes, indeed. And the text you have just quoted uh, is actually a quotation from Irenaeus. Uh, it's what he puts uh, as a, an epigraph on his title page. Uh, it's from Irenaeus. But uh, when Irenaeus obviously was speaking uh, of the present, he meant uh, the end of the second century. But Bilson appropriates uh, the quotation to his own time. So he has clearly the idea that episcopacy is uh, of apostolical origin. Um, but as you point out, there was not, I don't think, uh, episcopacy for him uh, had the sacramentarian, as it were, um, dimension that it acquired with some later divines. That might be the difference with the Carolines here. It doesn't stress very uh, strongly uh, the sacramental grace of uh, episcopal consecration. He's more interested in uh, sort of a perpetual government of Christ Church. Do you think that the sectarian views of the episcopacy that would come later uh, were driven by the political considerations of the interregnum and everything that happened in England? Well, uh, that was certainly uh, a factor which made the, uh, the claims for episcopacy more, more strident, uh, as it were. Uh, well, the doctrine didn't, didn't change uh, fundamentally. I think the Anglican mainstream even after 1660, was ready, for instance, to make a case uh, for continental Protestant churches, arguing that because of necessity, uh, their ordinations uh, could be, their non-episcopal ordinations could be excused uh, out of necessity. I think uh, only at the end of the 17th century, and in a rather small section uh, of the Anglican Church was the, the claim explicitly made uh, that non-episcopal uh, sacraments were invalid, for instance. But clearly there was a new urgency, perhaps um, a new stridency in claims for episcopacy after 1660, because Episcopalians had been a persecuted minority uh, during the interregnum, and they sort of uh, had their own back. And isn't it true that the 1662 prayer book uh, ordinal uh, makes an explicit mention that only those that have an episcopal uh, ordination may be considered validly ordained. Well, in the Church of England, yes. Uh, I mean, that was the practice uh, from quite an early time. 
for instance, we have uh, conversations of uh, Isaac Casaubon, uh, the French uh, scholar, with Lancelot Andrews. Uh, and Andrews is uh, very clear uh, that non-episcopally ordained ministers coming from the continent and wanting to minister in the Church of England had to be reordained uh, episcopally. Uh, but there was a distinction between saying that to minister in the Church of England you had to be episcopally ordained and accepting that on the continent uh, for Huguenots, for Protestant churches without any bishop, uh, the administration uh, was, le was legitimate out of necessity. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, I see. Um, all right, very good. So we have Thomas Bilson in 1593, the Perpetual Government of Christ Church. Uh, then you also mention Richard Bancroft, uh, who was quite a, not a notable figure. He, according, according to the evidence you cite, was of the same or a similar mind, at least, to Bilson. Uh, but you also mention Adrian Saravia. Would you speak a little bit about him? Well, uh, Saravia is generally said uh, to have been the, the very first divine to, de to defend uh, English episcopacy as jure divino, uh, at least to make the case explicitly in point. Uh, and what is interesting is that he was a continental divine, he was Dutch, uh, and he came uh, from the Netherlands into England, uh, became a chaplain uh, of the Bishop of Canterbury. So uh, it's quite an interesting case, which uh, and other instances can be found. Uh, an interesting case of a continental divine coming into England and making, as it were, a higher case uh, or a more explicit case for the divine right of episcopacy than many Anglican divines were willing to make at the time because uh, he had experienced uh, both systems. He came from very strict uh, Presbyterian background. And when he arrived in England, he was ready to defend uh, English episcopacy in very high terms in his controversy with, uh, with Beza. That's pretty incredible. Uh, and the, what, just what is the title of his book for the, for the reference, if, if anybody wants to look it up? Uh, well, uh, well, it's in Latin, uh, so it's uh, De Diversis Ministrorum Evangelii Gradibus. Uh, De Diversis Ministrorum Evangelii Gradibus. So, of the diverse uh, degrees uh, of the minister of the gospel, uh, as they were, as I translate, as they were instituted uh, by the Lord and transmitted by the apostles and confirmed by the perpetual use of all churches, and we have also, we have again that idea of a perpetual use of the, of the church, which uh, we have seen with, uh, with Billston, and that was published in 1590. Right, wonderful. And you mentioned Sutcliffe, and uh, we can wrap up with the section, but I think we should end with this uh, book, which is the Convocation Book of 1606. Um, and this was something written in a convocation. So uh, is it the House of Bishops that basically authorized it? Um, and it had a really high view of episcopacy. What would you say about this book? Uh, well, um, I am not an expert in 
canon law, I must say. So um, it, I don't uh, see it was not uh, officially published at the time because it didn't receive the royal assent. So I suppose that technically uh, it is not uh, an authority, could not be regarded as an authoritative uh, document of the church. It was only published uh, in uh, 1690 in a very different context, but it makes indeed a very strong case uh, for uh, episcopacy uh, and it, it appealed to uh, the authority uh, of the fathers. There is a clearly a very famous uh, quotation which uh, I must, uh, must Perhaps read it, it's a bit convoluted. Uh, it is a great error to assert, so it's uh, always construed negatively, the condemned errors rather uh, than saying positively what they mean, which was the usual way in the 17th century, that was regarded as more dignified. Uh, it is a great error to assert that whilst men do labor to bring into discredit the ancient fathers and primitive churches, they do not derogate from themselves such credit as they hunt after, and as much as in them lieth, bring many parts of religion into a wonderful uncertainty. So the idea that when uh, you attack the authority of the fathers, you uh, bring many parts of religion uh, into uncertainty. Wow, and uh, although the, the the royal assent from the king himself wasn't uh, something the book enjoyed, the fact that all of the bishops, at least present there, signed on to it in 1606, uh, it really shows this interesting trajectory from the 1580s with Brancroft, 1593 with Bilson, 1590 with Saravia, Sutcliffe, and then this book in 1606. It's a really strong uh sort of prima facie evidence about what was the mind of the church at the time. Uh, who, who in ancient history did these authors and books cite as a kind of a heretic on this question of episcopacy? Um, I found this name really interesting, Iarius. Who was he? And briefly, what did he do that was wrong in the old, uh, in the old church? Well, he's not a very well-known figure is often, even by uh, modern theologians who should know better, is often uh, uh, mixed up with Arius, which obviously was a much more important figure. But Arius is known uh, for Epiphanius. So Epiphanius is a 4th century, as you know, 4th century father who compiled a huge uh, catalogue, a huge book against herbetics. And Epiphanius, who is our major source describes uh, that man Aereus uh, as having attacked the superiority of, uh, of bishops uh, over presbyters and is presented as an heretic uh, by Epiphanius. So it seems to be that even from 1590 with Bilson um, to Bancroft and on to 1606 that you mention on page 98 that I'll read it. The decree on the apostolic institution of the episcopacy prepared at the convention of 1606 insisted on the most clear and evident testimonies for episcopal authority in the epistles to Timothy and Titus. 
patristic texts were brought in at a second stage to show that the ancient fathers generally, having no doubt upon their due searching the scriptures, fully considered of the form of ecclesiastical government, whilst the apostles live, do with one consent, affirm that Timothy and Titus were bishops. So would you, and in previous pages you mentioned that the peculiar Anglican way of appealing to tradition is that uh, the tradition, especially of antiquity, is interpreting the scriptures rather than as a secondary source. Would you say that this uh, view or this theological method uh, continues on uh, throughout the Church of England into the next centuries? Uh, is it changed in any way as time goes on? Well, I would say uh, that apart from a few exceptions, which are very interesting intellectually, but uh, probably were rather marginal uh, compared to the mainstream of the church, there was no uh, evolution from that point of view. That is, that uh, even before uh, the 42 and 49 articles, already in the 1530s, uh, when the Church of England, after the Church of England uh, had broken up uh, with Rome, it immediately uh, rejected, even in its very earliest formularies, the idea of uh, unwritten verities, as they were called. Unwritten verities, that is, the idea that some points of faith, as opposed to disciplinary um, aspects, but that some dogmas of the Church have no basis at all in Scripture, are, are transmitted by tradition, by uh, oral tradition uh, from the apostles in a parallel way. Uh, and I think there clearly was um, strong rejection of that view uh, in the Church of England. And I don't see any um, significant evolution, as I say, from that point. I mean, you have people who are more ambiguous, people like Richard Montagu, for instance, who was Bishop of Chichester and then of Norwich, who was a very strong Lodian, and he has some expressions which appear to suggest that he admitted tradition not only for the interpretation of Scripture, but as a supplement of Scripture, but it's not quite clear. He, he denied uh, later on that he had meant any such thing. And uh, so the people who had really an idea of tradition, we are going back to what uh, James mentioned, I mean, the uh, Eichelberman distinction between uh, type, uh, idea, notion A and notion B, as he calls them, of tradition. But that sort of higher view of tradition as uh, parallel to scripture uh, is probably quite marginal, even in very, very high uh, Anglicans uh, of the late 17th century. Right. And uh, so now, shifting gears a little bit, Dr. Quentin, um, the, the episcopacy having this interesting context and evolution and and momentum across uh, the, the 16th century, really, uh, with, with also this, this view of tradition that's also fascinating and almost a parallel to it. Um, I wanted to now ask you, so you're, you're now moving into the the end of the 16th century. Um, and uh, 
the Anglican divines are beginning to make these arguments with greater and greater intensity on on uh, on the church fathers and and they use tradition in this way and they defend ideas like episcopacy with it uh what what was the view of the reformed that is the nonconformist in England and on the continent and uh just briefly what where were they going at the same time well it's a complicated question i mean the difficulty is that uh very often at the times views were expressed in a polemical manner and obviously you need to distinguish between polemical arguments and the way it was customary to charge your opponents uh, with extreme errors and probably uh, if you look behind uh, sort of polemical rhetoric uh, a much larger area of consensus and especially in the controversies between uh, Church of England divines, Episcopal divines, and Puritans, uh, as they were called, you find Puritans uh, accusing people like Bilson of uh, having adopted a completely popish uh, doctrine of tradition of the fathers and so on, uh, as opposed to supposedly pure doctrine of sola scriptura, preserved by Puritans. But it seems to me uh, that fundamentally there was no major disagreement. I mean, they both argued uh, that the fathers uh, could be used. Uh, Puritans appealed to the fathers as well, although they officially repudiated uh, their authority, but they used them, they quoted from them. And um, both parts uh, repudiated that sort of high uh, independent uh, notion of tradition as parallel to scripture. So at the time, if you look beyond uh, so very strident uh, polemics, there was quite a large degree uh, of consensus. What about um, men like Beza, uh, who were slowly shifting the the Genevan establishment away from sort of Calvin's uh, mindset, would you say, I mean, this isn't a book about that, but I'm just a, just curious because they really influenced the, the Church of England, uh, at least the non-conformist, uh, you know, chunk of it, right, at the time. And so w- were they slowly moving towards the position that would be the de facto reform position in 1660 of the, the fathers as basically relevant? Uh, or were they still trying to say, look, these men are valuable and we ought to know them and use them? Well, there is a tension uh, between what they said and what they did, uh, because you can find uh, in Beza uh, very strong assertions uh, that the fathers are of no uh, authority, and especially in his discussions uh, on episcopacy and his controversy with the Already mentioned again, as we already mentioned, Saravia is very um, insists that that should should appeal to scripture alone. But if you look at Beza's own practice, obviously uh, it, that has been well illuminated by uh, a Genevan scholar, by Professor 
Irenabacus of Geneva. Uh, Beza himself was a very active patristic scholar. He published uh, patristic texts. He translated some Greek patristic texts into Latin. So in his own practice, at least, uh, he certainly regarded the fathers as relevant for the discussions of his own time. So there's a bit of a tension, I suppose, in Beza. I would say so, yes. And the reformed are, I guess, wrestling with, well, how to how do you, how to understand this 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 chunk of of traditional teaching and what to do about it. Uh, and I guess, unfortunately, historically, it's gone one way, but I suppose it could have gone a different way. Um, perhaps if Calvin were greater in greater authority, I, I suppose he's more an authority in name than in fact. But that's a different discussion. Um, I want to move now the conversation to the next piece of this part, part two, on page 139. Um, you you discuss a couple of things in, in between those two sections. You talk about um, pieces of the Apostles' Creed on Christ's descent into hell, which is very controversial even today. Uh, and, and you actually mention an interesting piece about that, which the listener can can and should go and try to find this book and read it for themselves about how uh, it was the Reformed Orthodoxy that Christ's descent into hell was to be understood as his descent, well, not his descent, it's really more like his descent to the grave, sort of, uh, a kind of a modulated and uh, an attenuated understanding of that, of that, uh, of that phrase, which today, a lot of people that aren't even reformed take as their own, whereas the Anglicans took a really strident uh, and very, very closely literal understanding of that. So, and we just have no time to go into that. This is a fascinating discussion of its own. And in fact, you mentioned this is one of the places where uh, Anglicans begin to strongly differ against the reformed, and you begin to see doctrinal divisions. Um, but so moving on from all that to now this piece, which is on page 139, you have this long section on, on how Anglicans move over, over the course of the later 16th century and into the 17th uh, from having these interesting peculiar views to being kind of a champion of them in a world that no longer held them apart from them in some ways. And I wanted to ask you, maybe spend the next couple of minutes uh, talking about this. Uh, the basis, the starting point, is your mention of the canon of 1571. So would you, uh, would you tell us what the canon said and uh, what role it played in the future polemics of the church? Well, but thing, uh, I think that's a very interesting uh, instance of retrospective reading, because you have uh, the canon in its immediate context uh, and the way it was reinterpreted later as part of a distinct uh, Anglican tradition. Well, initially, the canon uh, concionatores in Latin, or the canon on preachers in English, was passed in the convocation of 1571 to regulate preaching and it ordered preachers to teach nothing but that which is agreeable 
to the doctrine of the Old Testament and the New, and that which the Catholic fathers and ancient bishops have gathered out of that doctrine. So initially, I mean, in the immediate context, it seems to me to, be, to have a rather narrow scope. Uh, it meant uh, specifically uh, Trinitarian uh, dogmas, which Protestant divines regarded as scriptural because they were necessarily gathered out of scripture, collecti sunt, uh, the Latin phrase. Uh, so that didn't mean uh, very, very much, I suppose, in the immediate context. But starting from very early in the 17th century, starting from John Overall, who uh, at the time was uh, a religious professor of divinity uh, in Cambridge, and later uh, a bishop, uh, overall started to turn this rather limited canon into uh, the basis of a distinctly uh, Anglican methodology, the idea that uh, uh, divines should uh, really uh, limit themselves in their interpretation of scripture to uh, patristic interpretations, so or at least be guided by patristic interpretations. So uh, it became much larger in scope. And uh, when people later in the 17th century uh, endeavored to construct a distinctly Anglican tradition producing testimonies according to the practice of the time, they always included the canon concionatores as being a sort of profession of faith uh, by the Church of England. And it's interesting, uh, John Overall, he links this canon. Um, in fact, you say it's in 1609. Uh, there was a collected edition of John Jewell's writings. And John Jewell, we discussed early on, and he had a famous challenge in 1559 uh, with this strong emphasis against Roman Catholics on the fathers and who, sort of whom were they behind. Uh, that seemed to be the Roman Catholics that were on the defensive at that time. But in the early 1600s, it was now the nonconformists that weren't conforming themselves, not only to the establishment, but also to sort of the church fathers. And so John overall invokes not only the, the, the canon uh, of 1571, but he invokes John Jewell as well. And in this collected edition, which he was appointed to give, what, a preface to, right? He writes about this. Yes, indeed. Uh, so in the same way, Jewel's challenge, which initially, uh, it seems to me, was a rather uh, was a, was a clever, able, but rather commonplace polemical move, uh, was given considerable prominence because, in a retrospect, uh, it appeared to be specifically uh, English or specifically Anglican. Uh, I mean, it's... it's uh, See, I am, an, I am an historian, I am not a theologian, so I am not discussing uh, to what extent this reinterpretation can be understood as a legitimate evolution, uh, uh, in eodem sensu, uh, et adem sententia, to use uh, Vincent of Leven's criterion. Uh, but uh, clearly, those texts uh, were 
if I, perhaps it would be going, we're going too far to say misinterpreted, but they were clearly given uh, a far greater significance than they had in the immediate context. And as a result, uh, the theological balance, as it were, of the theological accent uh, uh, tended to shift. What were these men's, uh, uh, by these men, I suppose I mean the later Elizabethan divines and now the early Jacobean divines, like overall and Lancelot Andrews, um, what, what, what was their answer to the challenge from the Roman Catholics that they were a new church from the beginning, uh, not, not, not existing, but, but having come into existence only recently? Uh, on page 141, you, you discussed this. Um, did they view it as, as something that began in 1530s? And how does their view of tradition that we've just discussed uh, inform all this? Well, uh, there are what might be described as a very continuous view uh, of church history, especially in that uh, preface. You, you mentioned overall's preface to the 1609 edition of uh, Jewel's collected works. Uh, he, makes the point, uh, he makes the point that uh, uh, our church, for all substantial parts and points, remained of the same it was before. One true Catholic church from the beginning. Uh, and so uh, it tended to stress the continuity uh, between the church before and after the Reformation, the Reformation being not a radical break, but rather, as he put it, a repurgation, the, repur the Reformation uh, purgated the church of uh, uh, dubious equations, but fundamentally uh, the church remained the same. Right, that's fascinating. Uh, one of my fam uh, famous and my favorite uh, lines on this question is someone was asked in the 18th century, an Anglican divine was asked, where was your church before Luther? And he answered, well, where was your face before you watched it this morning? Uh, <laughs> you know, and th that seems to be the default Anglican view. And I think uh, people that uh, try to sort of have a, polem a polemical point about uh, the Reformation, at least in the Anglican context, uh, I think the evidence doesn't bear out claims of any church beginning at the time. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Quentin. This has been, I think, a really fascinating discussion, and it's only the beginning. God willing, we'll continue to have these conversations. 